everyone. Welcome to the Warren Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriela Ariana Capoverde, but you can call me Gabby. Our guest today is Mike DeBear, CEO of Zest AI. Zest helps lenders make better credit decisions, increasing revenue, reducing risk, and automating compliance. Mike has a rich career in leveraging customer insights, given his time at Nielsen, Harris Interactive, and J.D. Power and Associates. And today, he is leading Zest to fulfill a mission of making fair credit available to everyone. In this episode, you will learn all about Zest's products, how it builds more inclusive underwriting models for its clients, the company's culture, and insights on how the lending landscape is changing. Now, let's get started. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for being on the show today. How are you doing? Doing awesome, Gabrielle. Nice to be with you. Well, I'm really excited to hear about Zest AI. Um, and can you kick us off with telling us about what is the problem that you and your team are trying to solve? So, so the current credit system is failing America. Um, there's roughly 40 million Americans are credit invisible. Uh, you have individuals with thin files um, that aren't able to get fair access to credit. You have immigrants. You have protected classes that are treated differently. You name it, it's failed. The current credit system is failing America because it's built off of math that was created in the 1950s with limited data. And while that math has served us well, there there is a better way to solve that problem. And so Zest is on a mission to make uh, credit fair and transparent to everyone. Awesome. And I know that you guys work with a bunch of alternative data. Do you mind talking a bit more about what type of data that you use in order to create this more fair view of credit? You know what, really, we actually use traditional uh, credit reporting agency uh, data, raw trade lines. Uh, we're not pulling any creepy data like social media data or things of that sort. But it's through the better math where you're able to take what is, let's say, 75 signals or attributes about a borrower. And you're able to go through a process called feature engineering where you're combining variables together. You're looking at variables over time. And those 75 variables can get very quickly blown up into thousands of variables where the machine learning itself can say, of those thousands of variables, here's the few hundred. Um, so it's less, less about alternative data and more about how you're using the data itself. That's awesome. And it's quite powerful. So how is it that you work with your clients? Like, What does the typical onboarding process for your services look like? It's uh, transformed over time. So when I think about just a few years back, uh, you would be looking at an engagement process that would last 12 to 14 months, heavily involved uh, in going through everything from convincing them that AI isn't scary, it's not the Terminator coming in, and we're not going to be taking over your entire uh, company, all the way down to just getting through the procurement process. What we found now today is that more of a show me type of approach where we're engaging our customers is actually more fruitful. And so we're looking at going from 12 to 14 months down to a couple months. And how we do that is we actually deliver the machine learning model during the sales process. So a customer isn't actually having to make a decision on the AI driven model unless they've actually seen it first. So it's, a, it's really a test drive. So we're taking the risk out of AI adoption. Got it. And with that test drive, is a model that you're onboarding with, is that your champion product or what are the different products and features that you are offering to your clients? So if we're, we're first major product line is on just underwriting sales, so underwriting risk. 
Um, and so it could be any type of consumer loan, whether you're talking about indirect auto, direct auto, personal loans, credit cards, things of that sort. And we're helping them replace their old scorecard or could be replacing other generalized or national scores like FICO uh, with a model that's tailored specifically to them. So if I think of one of our customers, Green State in Iowa, you know, making decisions off of a national FICO score that you know, is using old math, but is generalized towards the entire US is not very powerful. What we go in and do, and we're actually tailoring a model into the communities that they serve. So you're thinking of Iowa, Southern Illinois, things of that sort, part of Nebraska. And we're actually training a model to that community. Borrowers have different behaviors. If you think of Jamaica, Queens, to Iuka, Mississippi, to Seattle, Washington, to out here in Los Angeles, California. I appreciate the shout out to Queens because that's that's my hometown. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and Somebody read your bio. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, we're both prepared for this yeah, in that yeah. case. <laughs> um, well, I was curious about talking more about your value proposition. Like, what does sure. that look like for these smaller banks, and what are they getting out of using Zest? So there's. Four areas that we look to when we're talking to uh, smaller banks, credit unions, is the first bucket surrounds the model itself being more powerful, more powerful at predicting if you should lend to a borrower versus not. And that's just simply from better math and more data. The second area of value is not only deploying this machine learning model, but ensuring that it's safe and compliant, that you can explain why that model or in some cases, that black box, you have to be able to explain why it's making the decisions that it is. Um, and so that compliance bucket is something that's really important for borrowers, right? You think of the last time that you might have taken a car loan and you come back with some reason codes that says you're, you know, I don't know, too much revolving credit or, or your income is too high or like these random terms that don't really mean anything to a borrower. So Actually, ensuring your model is fully compliant, that it's fully explainable, is an area of differentiation. I would say speed also matters. So, if you think, if one thinks of a traditional underwriting model being deployed, it takes roughly a year and a half. Our models, because of our automation, we're able to build the model 10 minutes hands on keyboard. There's no one who's able to do that in the industry. You look at the biggest CRAs, the biggest fintechs, no one is able to deliver a model as quickly. And so that's not only speed to the financial outcome. So, you know, a better model that's much more highly performant, but that's also a model and a system and a software in place where uh, if the marketplace is shifting or adjusting or transitioning, or if there are stimulus checks that are coming out, or if the economy is taking, you can quickly deploy a new model that is trained on the current economy. So if you think of the problem of, you know, the average credit union will have a scorecard that they've had in place for five, six years, well before the pandemic, that's been trained on things and an economy that doesn't exist anymore. But through machine learning, that's much more powerful, that's fully safe to deploy, but actually having software that can generate and adjust and refit your model to changes in the economy definitely is valuable for customers. And then the, the last area is ease. We really try to make it easy for our customers to engage us. It's not just about dumping off a software, but there is the people component. And so the fourth area of value for our customers is, is around ease. We try to make it easy to adopt AI-driven underwriting. Uh, and that takes beyond the software. You need people. Um, you need individuals 
that wrap around or an extension of that credit union, whether it be uh, business analysts that come from some of the best business schools in the U.S., like USC or maybe Wharton could be maybe somewhere in there, um, but they'll come from those schools and they'll actually wrap around the customer and help explain the model, talk about the economic performance of the model, but really guide them uh, through the process and be their Sherpa through AI adoption. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, a, that's maybe again, a new title. We should just call them the Sherpa of AI adoption. I don't know. <laughs> Work on that branding. <laughs> it's, and you mentioned it's like, it's quite powerful. It's like you have the tools, but you have to be able to like know you know, be informed and know when things are best to change and sure. um, you know, be able to like reevaluate, right? Because yeah. like, like you mentioned, things are ever changing, especially when yeah. you have dips and peaks in the economy. So do you mind sharing a bit more about how is it that you've impacted your clients? Um, I know you talked about the general value proposition, but sure. can you share sure. any success stories that you've had? So if I look across the last, I don't know, 50 or so models that we've built, on average, you're seeing an increase in approvals or yeses to borrowers of 25 to 30%. It's enormous. When you look at it from an accuracy perspective, when you compare a machine learning underwriting score versus a traditional like FICO score, you're seeing a 26% increase in overall accuracy. And so the economics are strong. I spoke of Green State earlier. I think what if we were to talk to Amy, uh, chief lending officer, about what she's most excited about, about their model and production is she saw very significant increases, but where she saw really strong improvement was on the low income members. So they saw 32% improvement in approvals for low income members at Green State Credit Union in Iowa. Certainly something to be proud of there. If we think of all in credit union uh, out of, geez, they're Alabama. They went from automation perspective, so auto decisioning at 20% all the way up to 90%. So when we think of auto decisioning, you're walking into a bank, you're walking into a credit union. Most credit union executives are reporting that it takes over 30 minutes to get a decision. I don't know, as a borrower, would that satisfy you? Of course it wouldn't. But through our software, you're able to get a decision in under a second. Uh, which actually improves the overall member experience. So that was a big coup for all in. Or you think of Discover, Discover Card. That's I think we improved their charge offs by over 50% for personal loans. That's an enormous payoff on such a large portfolio. Yeah, and that's amazing. And you mentioned so many great points, but I want to pivot the conversation more to like the industry landscape, right? Like you guys are very well positioned to see like the clear impact that lending or access to credit can have in low income communities, people who, according to statistics, traditionally do not have like the best FICO scores or subprime. How do you think that this shift in scoring is changing, right? Because when you think about algos, a lot of them, it may have, given like the previous uses of it, may have like a bad connotation, right? Like the big banks are traditionally just looking at FICO. Now we're more interested in looking at different variables. How have you noticed the industry changing specifically for the consumers that you're working with? So I'd, I'd start, Gabrielle, first with the data. And so if we think of one of the uh, large CRAs, Experian, they just announced Experian Go, where consumers can go in uh, that have thin files and help build credit. And so, for example, if you pay your Netflix bill on time, that's not showing up in your FICO score. But if you're an individual who's, who's climbing the income ladder, you're not going to have a mortgage. You might not even have an auto loan 
to be able to build history. But if you've paid your Netflix bill on time every month, you should probably be able to capture that because that goes to creditworthiness. Or there's another entrepreneur who launched a company called Perch. I think he actually graduated from USC as well. And he uh, had built an app where consumers can build their credit in a similar fashion, where they're actually paying bills through this app, and it's capturing all of the on-time payments, and so building uh, credit. So I think I'd start with the data, um, having new data to be able to access and uh, create a broader picture of all of America. I think then you get to the, the, the math itself. And so, again, as I mentioned, the current credit system is failing America. And it's failing America because we're trying to describe all Americans by you know, a couple dozen variables. If I sat down and tried to, my mom tried to describe me in 24 variables versus she, her describing me in a thousand variables, which is going to be a clearer picture of me, right? I think my mom could come up with a thousand things to say about me. They might not all be good, but it would definitely create a clear picture of me, Mike, the CEO of Zest AI or the pair of five. It creates a clearer picture and you have to have better math to be able to do that. I think beyond that, there's there's a couple other things that I, I think about is once you have a model, uh, you need to be able to check it and evaluate it to ensure that the model itself isn't uh, impacting protected class citizens. Uh, we need to make sure look at gender uh, approval rates. We need to look at other thin file individuals. And so having a methodology to evaluate the model and identify if there's less discriminatory alternative models that are just as performant, but uh, are actually will raise the the sea level in the industry so that more Americans are getting approved. So I'd look at methodologies like that. So at Zest, we use what's called the approach called adversarial debiasing, where our models are trained to find the optimum model, the most inclusive model that optimizes for both fairness and inclusivity. That's something we're super proud of. I think the the final area that I would look at is around how banks are evaluating if they're doing a good job. So the yardstick that they evaluate themselves with. So I'm sure you're aware, but if you look at the lending system, you're not collecting the ethnicity of the borrower. So after the fact, after you've done your loans, a bank is faced with this question of now I need to try to guess the ethnicity of my borrower. And they use an approach called BISG, B-I-S-G, first name, last name, zip code. Uh, Mike DeVere, if you look at my last name, I come out as Hispanic um, in my zip code. If you look at uh, Teddy Flo, who's our general counsel, uh, he, he comes out as white, though he's Cuban. And so it's highly inaccurate. We've actually developed a approach called the Zest Race Predictor, where we're using machine learning to predict the race of a borrower. And what you're seeing is a significant improvement in categorization. So there's false positive things like you've got a 60% improvement in the classifications of whites as protected class. And so we're able to move people in a bucket. And so why that matters is if we've done all these things to improve inclusivity and lending, if you don't have the right yardstick, how are you evaluating if you're actually making good progress? That's interesting. And what do you think these banks could do better, right? Like you mentioned thinking about race and like the predictors and evaluating fairness and inclusivity. But is there anything else that you would make as a recommendation to your clients that, you know, you either help them with that you have existing products for, or you wish you could see more of? Well, I think so that you co-mingle two words, fairness and inclusivity. So fairness is something that I can evaluate, measure. 
Uh, if I look at you know approval rates for females versus males, there's a disparity there. And so I can evaluate the model and say, is it helping it or not? That's fairness. Inclusion is, a, is for me, a, a broader topic, and it goes beyond the lending itself. It actually goes to the bank or financial institution and looking at their hiring practice practices and looking at the training that they're doing internally and looking at their leadership team. Are, are they ensuring that they have a diverse leadership team themselves? So it's beyond fairness, but inclusion for me uh, means a much broader topic. And so that's something that I'd like to see. I think there's definitely a will, but from a progress perspective, I think there's there's a lot of opportunity there. And I'm curious, how do you see the lending landscape changing in the next three to five years? I think uh, right now we're at a tipping point where AI is going to become the dominant way that lending is done within the U.S. So I will expect to continue to see that gain uh, momentum. I think the other uh, lar large trend that we're seeing right now is this shift away from these generalized national scores is because you have better technology and you have better math, you can develop highly performant models that are tailored to your community or the geographies that you serve, or the product lines that you serve, or what have you. And so these very large companies that have just created these behemoth individual scores, I think that's going to go away. Uh, you, when we surveyed credit union executives, you know, a great percentage of credit unions executives thinks that FICO and their reliance on FICO will go away in under a decade. It's crazy to think about, right? I think just paying attention to the lending landscape this past year, you mentioned so many startups, but then there's also like Susu and, you know, yeah. so much to think about all these other factors, right? And I, I think grew up in the 90s and FICO was just the thing that you aimed for, right? It's like, sure. I, I remember sure. getting my first credit card and my mom telling me, you got to get a great credit score, right? Yeah. So it's really interesting to be at the point where folks are challenging the idea of a credit score just being the, the say-all. Well, think, think, so think of your FICO score. And if, if you and I go in and look at it today, it'll be X. And then tomorrow, it'll be Y. And then the next day, it'll be Z. It starts looking like a heart monitor. It's going up and down and all over the place. So the stability of, of, of these broad scores, because of the limited variables, logistic regression is able to handle you know, a couple dozen variables. It makes it volatile. And yet, you're still a good borrower but it just starts picking up all this fluctuation. So uh, I'm very bullish about it. I think the iron grip that some of these national score providers have had on the industry is going to go away. And really what we're talking about is empowering the institution themselves to help them actually make the decisions on their own. So they don't have to outsource it to some national score provider, but can uh, build a model themselves that's for the communities. But I want to pivot now to your career. You worked at so many different companies like JD Power Associates, Harris Interactive, and Nielsen. So, what got you interested in joining Zest? If I look across my career, there's a, a common thread. So, uh, translating data into insight. And so, I've always liked numbers. And I think what's exciting about Zest in particular is I'm not only able to build on my experience, but from a mission perspective, making credit fair and transparent to everyone. It's pretty cool. I mean, when I, I think about talking to my youngest daughter, Dasha, who, who's nine, uh, about what I do and explaining the impact that we're having, I'm really proud of that. I mean, if I, uh, we, we just got the stats. So when we look at the credit unions that we're serving today, we're impacting over 70,000 families in America. 
70,000 families are impacted in America because this little startup out of Southern California, you know, with about 100 employees are impacting 70,000 families in the U.S. and ensuring that they have fair access to credit. So if that isn't a reason to be at Zest, I, I don't know what is. And you mentioned that this particular mission stood out to you, but what got you interested in fintech in general and, you know, made you pay more attention to companies like Zest and be interested in digging deeper into credit? I think for me, Zest was the, the nice intersection of the latest math, so something I have a passion for, but applying it to a problem that has been around for decades. So when, when I think of fairness and inclusion in lending in particular, you know, for me, it's not a Republican or Democratic issue. It's an American issue. You know, it's, it's about making sure that every American gets a fair shot. And so when I looked at uh, Zest itself from a career perspective, yeah, being a part of an organization that, you know, we're leading on AI and lending is cool. But really, it came back to, I really know that we're making a change. Every employee at Zest comes into work knowing that they're making a difference. That's why we've recruited the most unbelievable and talented group of individuals from some of the best schools in the U.S. It's because these are individuals that care about making a difference and being warriors for change. Yeah, I love that. And how else would you describe Zest culture? Well, I definitely, so I'd start off with individuals who care. You know, when you walk through the halls, uh, whether it's the fact that there's dogs running around the whole office all the time, but it's an organization of people who care. We care for each other. We care for our customers and we care for the end customer and the communities that they're serving. And so I'd start off with care. I, I think the other thing that from a culture perspective is, you know, at sometimes to a fault, we're nice, which sometimes limits the amount of radical candor that could happen uh, in our office. But, you know, we're a nice organization. And so if we care about each other, uh, we're nice to each other that then starts creating this culture of being customer centric and focusing and putting your customer first because I'm caring about their business outcomes. It's not what I can get from them. It's about helping them. And so, you know, I'll have, I have a passion for each of our customers and we will say, you know, we love our customers. Well, we use the word love when we talk about them. And so everybody has a passion for their customer themselves. We celebrate individuals that collaborate and work together uh, which if you think of a tech company, oftentimes tech companies are filled with brilliant people who went to these great schools and they're wonderful individual contributors. That's not how you build a scale-up organization. And so scale-up organizations for me is having all those talented individuals, but having talented individuals that celebrate working together and collaborating. Yeah. And how has it been with us for a bit over three years? And most sure. of your time at this point has been during the pandemic and over um, remote work culture? How has it been making sure that you're able to keep folks motivated and mm -hmm. passionate and still continue that type of like team-based efforts? Yeah, I think it, uh, it was hard. It was really hard in the beginning. So if you think of, you know, if I went back on my leadership handbag, you know, I've got 10 gears, you know, this is a completely different gear that we had to develop of how to engage, how to be able to talk uh, to individuals and create that cohesion together. And so having fun things where we had a bartender from the UK uh, teaching us all how to make, uh, we had three different gin drinks that we all made together as an organization. And so had this virtual happy hour where a bartender was teaching us to do stuff like that. 
I think ensuring that you have frequent contact with individuals and you always do it over video. So the research is showing that it's much more meaningful when we can see each other versus not seeing each other. I think that we also benefited as an organization of having strong employee engagement going into the pandemic. So we had a lot of equity built up that has held us going through it. I think in the end, though, uh, you know, from my perspective, is if employees feel valued and they feel that they're cared for and they feel that what they're doing matters, you're going to have a happy workforce, whether you're working virtually, whether you're working in the office two days a week or every day. Sounds awesome. And, you know, I know that Zest is the first fintech company, or perhaps you've worked with fintech clients beforehand, but I'm curious about your personal views. You seem very passionate about financial inclusion, and we've talked quite a bit about lending, but are there any other areas of fintech that you're interested in and you're actively following? So from a fintech perspective, I actually pivot hard out of fintech. And I love I love organizations like Calm or Headspace and what they're doing for mindfulness. Um, so I go towards the soul um, beyond fintech. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think that technology has done wonderful things to bring people together, but it has also created a lot of suffering at the same time where individuals aren't as healthy as they could be. And so, you know, I applaud those two organizations and the technology that they've developed because they're trying to teach people skills to live a healthier and happier life. And so, uh, I mean, that's why we have our, uh, we're doing mindfulness. You know, we do meditation three days a week. That's awesome. It's super interesting to hear other other aspects of you as well. And really appreciate your time. You know, we always have a personality question at the end of our podcast. So Mm -hmm. um, I know you mentioned virtual happy hours, but Mm -hmm. at least I was told when things were in person that you were also a great bartender. So (laughs) what, (laughs) what was your favorite drink to make at your company happy hours? Oh, geez. Um, so uh, I think uh, for my head of comms, Bruce Ben, I like to make what a uh, 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 drink that was popularized in the early 1900s called the Vukare. It's uh, geez, six or seven different drinks. Um, and it was popularized from New Orleans. It's a scotch-based drink. Um, one of the ones that I've been making and I made for the staff was I infuse gin with strawberries, uh, muddle it together. And then I'll mix it with lemonade. And so it ends up tasting a bit like pink lemonade, but with a punch of gin, a little basil on top just to make it fancy. That's awesome. And how did you pick all of this up? I love the creativity. Uh, So I I worked my way through college. So I would stock shelves at Costco uh, at night and bartend at the same time. Uh, Not at the same time, but the same night. Um, And so I'd go from one to the other. And so you know, uh, definitely learned the skills there. You know, I, I definitely enjoyed the service industry, whether you're talking about being a server or a bartender, it, it teaches you skills on how to relate and connect with people that I use today. So you put all my degrees aside, I learned great lessons at uh, 10 o'clock at night, sitting across the bar from someone. No, I, I completely agree. I, I was also a waitress like back in the day. And I think it teaches you how to work hard for your money and how to respect a lot of folks. You know, I think when you're like the other side, it's like sometimes you don't know, you don't appreciate how much someone goes through to like create this whole experience for you. So well, they become, they're Um, human, they're human at that point. So, so you know what it's like to be the person walking up to the table. And so I, I find people at times to be dismissive or just downright rude. But because we've lived in that reality, both of us have lived in that reality, we're aware of that. And I think that serves us well. 
Yeah. And I, I always think to myself, I'm like a day of like 10 hours in the office is nothing the same as like 10 hours on your feet, like bustling around trying to not spill oil on yourself. Yeah. So. yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Um, We've had such a wonderful session learning more about Zest and learning more about you. So really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Gabrielle. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you love our show, please write us a review or engage with us on social media. We greatly appreciate your support and it helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium at Warren Fintech. Here you'll access interviews, articles, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, a very special thank you to our wonderful editor, Rafael Ostria. Until next time, your host, Gabby.